Amen. Well, the music portion of our service has absolutely set the table for where we're going in Scripture this morning. As we think about even the words of that song, that all I have needed, thy hands have provided. And that which Mark has shared with us in the, the lyrics of the song that they sang, that Jesus is my very life and my very breath. Today in Scripture, we're going to look at two people, two encounters with Jesus in the life of people who desperately needed Him to touch their lives. This is the 10th and final message in our It Matters What You Believe series, and we're doing our final belief, but moving toward the next logical step. We've been talking about how it matters what you believe, and if in fact these things that we have said mark us as Christians are the things that we believe, then next it begins to flesh itself out in our lives into the things that we do. And so I will say, not only does it matter what you believe, but it matters how you behave. I remember often my mom telling me those words in church, you need to behave. And on more than one occasion, I probably parsed the verb incorrectly, but my statement was, I am being have. I don't even know what have meant, but I was being have. And usually that was because I'd gotten pinched somewhere along the way and I decided to sit still and behave. But the reality is it does matter how we behave. There are behaviors of a Christ follower that will flow out of our beliefs. And today is certainly one of those kinds of messages that would lead us to different behavior. Our text today comes from Luke chapter 8. And I invite your attention there. Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 40. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And as you're turning there, I want us to put the statement of affirmation on the screen. Today, where our belief is about the idea of humanity. And here is the statement. I want us to read it together. Here we go. I believe all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Let's say that again. I believe all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now I know that there's all kinds of theological debate about does God love everyone? Does God love just Christians? Uh, does, is there a difference in the way that He loves? And we understand that God is loving. That is His character. We understand that God is uh, by character uh, a God of justice and a God of truth. And so we will look at this together today. But more than anything, I want us to think about how we respond. We don't fully know the heart of God. And I believe that there's enough uh, scriptural evidence to say that our role in sowing seeds and sharing the gospel and ministering to people literally flows from the heart of a whosoever will come God. I believe that the Bible is clear when it says that God's desires that none should perish, but all would turn in repentance. I believe that the Bible is clear that if we do place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be saved. And again, there's all kinds of theological debate, and that's not what we're here to do today, is to determine whether which of these is right. Some people talk about the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. I would simply say this to you, in all of my years of hearing discussions about those two truths, there's a beautiful divine tension right in the middle. And I think we live there. If you go to hell, it's not because God sent you there. It's because God has given you the opportunity to receive Him. And I believe with all of my heart, if you go to heaven, it's because of His grace. He does it. There's nothing of us that is worthy or deserving of His grace. 
And so those two truths will just rest as a foundation in this message. But as we look at these two encounters in Luke chapter 8, I think we'll see some things about the very heart of God and we'll see some things about our own response. Let's look together in Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was at death's door. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffered from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all that she had on doctors yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the tassel of his robe, or as you're probably more familiar with the language, the very hem of his garment. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly cured. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house saying, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. After that, he came to the house he let no one enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the, parent, uh, the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, Stop crying, for she is not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him, because they knew the child was dead. So, she took, uh, so he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give to us understanding of this word that we have read. Thank you for your word and for how it guides our lives and it guides our beliefs. But beyond that, it guides our behaviors. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would become a compassionate church, recognizing that there are needs all around us. And God, I pray that we would order our lives in such a way that we could meet needs in the lives of others and share the truth of the gospel with those that are around us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're looking at these two incidences in the life of our Savior. We look at, as Luke records the ministry of Jesus, the intermingling of two stories. This woman with an issue of blood who seems to almost be a a parenthesis in the story because Jairus, this man, this ruler in the synagogue, this leader of the synagogue, comes to Jesus with a daughter who is in desperate need of a touch from the Master. In fact, they knew very clearly, he knew very clearly, Jesus was their only hope for life and breath. She is at death's door. This 12-year-old daughter of Jairus is about to die. And we realize that as he comes to Jesus, it's interesting to think that it must have taken a great deal for him to come to Jesus. I mean, you think about that. He's a leader in the synagogue. I would imagine very clearly that in this text, 
it, it would have taken a, a great deal for him to come. He had to overcome issues of pride and even prejudice toward Jesus Christ or possibly shame and embarrassment. And yet he knew that if he could get Jesus to his daughter, there would be a significant touch. All throughout Scripture, we see Jesus Christ touching tragedy and sorrow and pain. In, in our lives, think about this with me. I mean, this is just another powerful account, an unforgettable account of Jesus healing someone. In fact, two someones. But tragedy and sorrow and pain marks life. It's endless and it seems inescapable for us in this life that sickness and death are a part of our experience. The fall of man seems to have placed into the fabric of the universe the deadly force of death and sickness in the midst of that. And it spent, sent all of us spiraling downward, careening into sickness and death. And attendant to that is sorrow and sadness. Every single person in this room, I would imagine, have dealt with this. You have walked to death's door. You've been to a place where someone around you was dealing with very, very serious illness. And there's such a helpless sense in the midst of that, is there not? Would you agree? Have you ever been in one of those waiting situations, in the waiting room of the ICU, in the waiting room of a, an emergency room, waiting for some doctor's report and some sense of hope that something could be done? Our text really, in, in some ways, shows us the, the futility of our own wisdom as humans to do anything about our current situation and our desperate need for Jesus. But I believe you'll see this. I believe that you'll see very clearly as we look together this morning that the loving heart of the Father is demonstrated to us through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but also in the life of Jesus. We see the surety of hope. Again, as I said before, there are theological debates about this whole issue. Does God love everybody? Let me ask you a simple question. I want everybody to participate. Choir, you're probably going to have to help me out, okay? I know sometimes we don't always answer questions out here because we're scared that the pastor is trying to trick us. Here's the question. Does God hate? How many would say yes? Raise your hand. How many would say no? Raise your hand. All right, for those of you that have raised your hand and said no, let me take you to three or four verses of Scripture. Psalm 5, 5, The boastful cannot stand in your presence, O Lord. You hate evildoers, workers of iniquity. Psalm eleven five, The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. He hates the lover of violence. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to Him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. Can I give my quiz again? Anybody want to redo on that quiz? Scripture very seriously and, and pointedly says God both loves and hates. And I don't want you to lose me on this one. Does God hate? Yes. Does God love? Yes. But it's not a contradiction, it's a simple statement of truth. You and I cannot fully understand uh, the mysteries of God and His nature, but we can see that Jesus lived His life in such a way that demonstrated God's grace. 
And what I would purport to you this morning is this, very simply, that as long as there is life and as long as there's breath, there is hope in Jesus Christ. Until someone's eternity is irrevocably fixed at the point of death, leaving this life and entering into eternity, there is hope. Hope, And I truly believe with all of the fabric of my being that God loves people, that all people are loved by God. He hates the things that we do. He hates the sin of the world. And I believe that the, because of that hatred of that sin, that God in His holiness sent Jesus as a substitute to die in the place of sinful humanity so that we might be saved. I hope that you would say amen to that, that you could give a hearty sense of praise God that He would save anyone. You know, people often wrestle with this and they say, how in the world could God send anyone to hell? My question is, I think, all the greater in this question. How in the world could a holy God save anyone or why would He? Why would He not just banish all of us to a Christless, lifeless eternity of punishment? We have profaned His holy name. And we are separated by our sin from this holy God. So as I think about this whole construct, before we even get to our our text and the thought of our text, God loves and God demonstrates that love in Jesus Christ. And you and I ought to be living representatives as the body of Christ. Last week we talked about compassion. We talked about how you and I ought to be moved in our lives to see opportunities around us. And really today, I want to to take that as sort of a caveat for this text. I've titled this message, Opportunities versus Obstacles. Now, I, I would venture a guess that most of you schedule your life like I do. I really lately have seen in my life that I have two speeds. Asleep and overdrive. If I'm awake, I'm on the move. I I rush through conversations with my wife and my kids. I rush through conversations with my kids and then I rush my kids out the door. And then I rush to my first appointment. And then I rush to my next appointment. And I'm thinking about appointment number seven. And all of us do this at some levels. And have you ever been in the middle of that rush mode and all of a sudden interrupted, a nail in the tire, an unexpected phone call, something that demanded your attention right there. Some of you right now, I can see you viscerally, your blood pressure is going up as I think about or talk about interruptions in your life. How many of you don't deal too well with interruptions? Anybody? Some of you are like, come on, get on with it, Pastor. Don't give us any more tests. Preach the sermon so we can go eat lunch because i got things to do. I know you. But the reality is, Jesus found Himself over and over again pressed in by crowds of people, throngs of people. In fact, here in Luke 8, we see one of the busiest seasons, one of the most popular seasons of Jesus' ministry. And you would expect that that he would be hurried and and harried by all the crowds and the interruptions, people grabbing for his time and vying for his attention. We've seen just before this, to give you background, that Jesus had, had gotten into a boat and went to the other side just to get away from the crowds. So there's nothing wrong with that kind of separation. In fact, it's healthy for us to take Sabbath rest. It's healthy for us to, to slow down. 
But I want you to see this, that Jesus was engaged and interacted in the lives of people because His life was geared toward doing only that which the Father wanted Him to do. I, I believe that many of us have fallen victim to the, cust, uh, the culture around us. And we let our cell phones or our daytimers schedule out our lives. It's sort of like this. We make our decisions and then our decisions make us. Rather than seeking the heart of the Father and saying, Father, I want to be involved in those things which you call me to do and let some other things fall by the wayside so that your life can handle divinely sent interruptions. Am I speaking to anyone here this morning? I believe there's somebody here that's going, yes, I need that. Well, I see in Jesus' case, can you imagine a more urgent and pressing need? This man has come with his 12-year-old daughter at death's door. I don't imagine that he approached Jesus casually. Again, he was a ruler of the synagogue. Therefore, he had to overcome lots of different things even to come to Jesus. He had swallowed pride. He had said, I'm not worried about what they might say about me. I need to get to this rabbi. And so he presses in and he falls at the feet of Jesus and says, oh, if you will only come. I just think about the weight that Jairus was carrying. Years ago, we brought home our second daughter from Baptist Hospital in New Orleans. I was preaching one Sunday night at a nearby church there close to the seminary campus, and Stephanie called me, and she said, as soon as you have opportunity, call me. And so when we finished the service, as quick as I could, I picked up the phone. Her fever, Haley, our middle daughter, her fever had spiked up very, very high. And so we rushed down to Children's Hospital downtown. And when we got there, they told us that there were serious things going on in her little four-day-old body. And uh, she ended up with bacterial meningitis. And we were absolutely frazzled. We were at the absolute end of any sense of, of common sense. I mean, it was like the, we were just living in the fray. Everything was kind of spinning out of control. We were young parents and scared to death at looking at this lifeless little body. Now, you know, you've seen Haley, you've met Haley. Haley came through that just fine. God answered prayers of the saints of, of God, and she was well, she was healed. But in that moment, there was such fear in our hearts that this little girl, not knowing, is she going to make it? Is she okay? So in some small way, I find myself moved toward Jairus as he comes to Jesus. And I almost want to tell the crowd around Jairus, get out of the way. Do you understand? Jesus has a mission to get to. I want to almost say to this woman who has this issue of blood, you need to understand he is on his way to something important. Now, I don't want to overlook her sickness. And so let's look back to our text together. And let's just begin to think through this together. Again, this is a season of incredible popularity. People crowding all around him. Physical exhaustion had produced in, 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 been produced in Jesus. Weary and worn out, he went to the other side, as I mentioned. Interesting, the response that he got on the other side. He healed a man of demon possession. He delivered a man, and they got scared and asked him to leave. So we come back to these places of interaction. Jairus, this agonized father, is driven to Jesus. And when he gets there, he comes to him, falls at his feet. At the point of death is my daughter. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be well. 
as prominent as this man was at this point, he knew that there was power in Jesus. Let's keep going. Verses 42, 43, and there Luke leaves the store and he turns to the interruption. And it comes to Jesus in the middle of this crowd. It's interesting. I made a couple of notes this week about these two that were in need. This woman was dying to live. For 12 years, dying to live. I'll spend whatever I have to spend. I'll go see whatever doctor I have to see. I want to live. And this little girl had lived 12 years of her life and now is about to die. I don't know all the significance, but the, there's 12 years on both sides. So the, the, the case is that they both are in desperate need. Luke tells us about this woman's condition. She had an issue of blood. We know that blood flowing from her would have been unbelievably uh, troubling for her and it would have been completely inconveniencing to her. But you realize that from the Old Testament law that this woman was now considered unclean. If you go back to Leviticus and look through the law, this hemorrhaging of her, uh, continual hemorrhaging would have kept her away from the synagogue. It would have kept her away from the temple. It would have kept her away from people. It would have put her in a condition very similar to that of a leper. She was to be completely quarantined and away from everyone. There was a ceremonial washing that would take place after a, a, a woman's time of, of natural flowing of, of blood or hemorrhaging. But here, this has gone on for 12 years. It's continued. And so she is completely cut off from people, socially outcast, socially isolated. The pain runs deeper than most of us could ever even fathom. Cast aside. And where do we find her? Isolated? Separated? No, in the middle of a crowd. It, it would be like a leper walking, cloaked him, cloaking himself over so no one could see and walking directly into the middle of a crowd. And she knew that if she could get to Jesus in a touch of faith, she reaches out, people pressing all around, and she touches the very hem of his garment, the tassels that would come off the ends, the cords off of the end of his garment. And she touches it and immediately power flows out of Jesus. And we know from the text that we just read, he stopped and said, who touched me? Now the disciples were, were kind of curious about this in a strange way. How in the world could you ask such a question, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. And he said, no, I know that power went out from me. That many commentators dealt with this in different ways and said it's interesting to think that Jesus did not perform this part of the healing that the Father did, that in His humanity He asked the question, who touched me and this woman touched I don't know fully, but I just know that He knew that power had gone out from Him and it says immediately she was healed of that hemorrhaging. And now there's a uniqueness to this story because Jesus, when He asked her who touched me, she's completely exposed. And something remarkable happens, something beautiful happens. It's a continuation, if you will, of this healing. Jesus perceived in Himself that power had gone out. He asked, who touched my garments? He looks around to see who does it. And this woman, knowing what had done, been done to her, came in fear and trembling. She fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. The confession here leads to Him saying, daughter... Your faith has made you well. 
I believe with all of my heart that this all-seeing God, the Father, sees this woman push her way through the crowd. And Jesus speaking to her here, daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, go in peace. Be healed of your disease. He made it permanent. It was a continuation. The beauty of this story is just unbelievable that she would be bold enough to say, I don't care who knows it, Jesus is the one who touched my life. We see great Great compassion. I want us to see four things this morning. If you're taking notes this morning, you can jot them down. And, and they come out of this and they flow for us as examples. Number one, Jesus' accessibility. Jesus' accessibility. You see, we, we've seen him withdraw for a time, but he always came back. And even in his withdrawing to the other side, he did ministry. Here we see Jesus accessible to Jairus, accessible to the crowd as they pressed around, but always accessible to faith. When this woman reached out with a touch of faith, Jesus is there. This interruption was an opportunity for the glory of God to show in her life and for that crowd. In your life, do you, are you accessible for people to interrupt you? Is your schedule such that that if, if an interruption comes, it just becomes something that gets in the way of where you're going? As, as you live your life, are you missing the opportunities that are around you to touch the lives of people? There are people that pass you, countless people, every single day, lost and hurting and in need. And, and church family, I just have to say this. God's desire and His design is that we, the body of Christ, would herald the message of Jesus every single day. We've been talking on the last couple of Wednesday nights about sharing our story. And church family as a whole, we'll, we'll hear more about this through our Sunday school classes, our Bible fellowship in the weeks to come. But if you have a story to tell, then be prepared to tell it. Tell your story. I've been so blessed. I asked two weeks ago for members of our church family to begin writing out their testimony. And we would help them with, with, with making sure that they kind of could condense it down to a, a very simple, um, readable format, if you will. I've had four or five people hand me their story today and say, would you read through it? That blesses my heart to be able to say, people are saying, Jesus touched my life. Jesus was accessible. And I believe that the message that we have is the hope of the nations. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And if that is true, then we need to make ourselves accessible and recognize obstacles not as deterrents, but as opportunities for the gospel to go forth. Secondly, I want you to see this. I want you to see not only his accessibility, but his attitude. Jesus calls her daughter. This is the only time recorded in Scripture that Jesus uses this term, daughter. It says, a few verses before, a certain woman came to Him. She came as a nameless, faceless woman, separated from all of society, pushed off to the side, helpless, homeless in essence. She was scattered from everyone, separated. And when Jesus came to the place of healing her, when she touched the hem of His garment, He says, daughter. Your faith has made you well. She walked in just a nameless, faithless woman. She left the daughter of a king. 
That ought to make somebody get fired up excited. The, the attitude of Jesus is tender and he reaches toward this woman with tenderness. This woman is now called daughter. Hallelujah. Jesus' attitude here, when he looked around for someone, she falls down before him. How unclean she had been, how long it had been, and how difficult it had seemed to find access to him. But she knew if I can just get to the hem of his garment. She simply put the problem right back into his hands. <coughs> Immediately his response was to make permanent her condition. She just admitted what she had done. I'll go back to that idea of being inaccessible. One person said it this way, I've so scheduled my life that I simply don't have room for interruptions. I've made my decisions and my decisions have made me. And what opportunities do we miss to be salt and light in the world when our attitude is not focused on the fact that Jesus can take a nameless, faceless, hopeless individual and turn them into an heir to the kingdom. My life ought to reflect the accessibility of Jesus. My life ought to reflect the attitude of Jesus. Number three, I want you to see this. I want you to see Jesus' actions. Jesus' actions. We see the interruption end and they come back to him and they say, never mind Jesus, you don't need to go any further toward Jairus' house. The girl is dead. And Jesus continues forward. In my own sanctified imagination, I sometimes try to fill in the gaps in Scripture. Not to add to the Bible. Can you imagine the impatience of Jairus? Jesus, I need you. Okay, let's go. Jesus is on his way. He's going to heal my daughter. And all of a sudden, all of the scene changes as this woman touches him. The crowd scatters. Jesus has this interaction with this woman. She falls at his feet. He calls her daughter and says, your faith has made you well. And all of the ramifications of the story, I mean, people perhaps knew who she was. So they said, now, she was unclean. She was in our presence. Do we now find ourselves unclean, all of the things going on. But I think about Jairus' perspective. How impatient and anxious he must have been. We've got to go. And then the news hits. His daughter is dead. As we move forward toward the house, there are professional mourners that have already began to wail and cry. It was customary in those days to hire mourners to bemoan the death of an individual. There's, there was a terrible frenzy in that culture about death. They would actually literally rip their garments and tear out their hair and cry out with loud shrieks and put sackcloth on at times or ashes on their face because they'd come into the face of death. There's no stoic resignation at all as you might have seen among Greeks. The people were very emotional in their mourning. A sense of hopelessness had gripped them. In contrast to that, Jesus meets their cynical laughter. It says they laughed at him. He said, she is not dead. And they laugh at the Lord. They come into the house 
And Jesus simply asked, why are you crying like this? The, the actions of Jesus lead, to great lead me to understand that he had great confidence in the power of God. The same question asked earlier in the life of his ministry as we see him raising Lazarus. There was a sense Jesus knew where he was going and what he was going to do. And he did not raise this little girl for her sake. Oh, I would imagine that when her spirit heard him call to her, get up, it was summoned back to pain. It was summoned back to a life of misery. Some have said about this death and about Lazarus' death that he, when he heard the voice of Jesus, he, he would not have wanted to come back except that it was Jesus who called. I don't know about you, but if I die and leave this earth and go to glory to be in heaven, I don't want Jesus to call me back for round two here. You, you may be enjoying your ride. I've gotten to the place in my life, and, and I'm a relatively young man, but you get to the place where your, your knees start to buckle and your belt won't. You get to the place in life where you, you bend over to tie your shoes and you say, what else can I do while I'm down here? I don't want to make another trip. This little 12-year-old girl was called back to this place of suffering and sorrow. But she was called for Jairus, and his wife, for Peter, James, and John, for you and for me. Because we know that Jesus has the power over death. Amen? The actions of Jesus demonstrated the power of God. Do you really live your life with that as the backdrop? You believe confidently God has the power to change circumstances. If you do, you'll live differently. And if you believe our statement of affirmation that all people are loved by God and they are in need of Jesus as a Savior, then why in the world will we stop short of doing anything we possibly could to get the gospel out? Jesus was accessible. He was tender in his attitude. He had an incredible action that showed the power of God. And fourthly, I want you to see this very, very simply. It's Jesus' authority. Jesus pointed out to them that it is so characteristic of human fallen nature. You see it in both cases. In this woman, she had spent everything she had going to physician after physician after physician. The text doesn't tell us this, but it seems like at some point after 12 years, one of them would have had the grace and the kindness to say, there's nothing we can do for you. But they took her last pennies all the way down to spending everything she had in hopes that there might be something that could be done. Jesus' authority, in a word, speaks life and the little girl comes to life. Jesus in His authority is touched by the touch of faith and a woman is instantly healed. It ought to lead us to the place of just saying, thank you, Father, for this beautiful reminder of this lowly one from Galilee and Nazareth <laughs> who we now know to be the Lord of all the universe. Jesus' accessibility, attitude, actions, and authority demonstrate for us that we should live life looking for opportunities and that divine interruptions are not obstacles, but they are in fact opportunities for glorifying God. For you and for me this morning, we have authority. You say, well, I don't have the authority of Jesus. Well, I 
beg your pardon. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me and I am with you to the end of the earth. We are given authority. We're seated in heavenly places. We don't fully comprehend all it means, our identity in Christ. But I do know this, that we are to take on the mind of Christ and the mission of Christ. So as a church family, can we this morning just agree that we will live our lives seeking to bless others with the gospel? Everything that we do, everything that we have should be used up, invested into the future. The old joke is very, very prominent. Preachers have told it over and over again. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you, but you can send some things ahead. As we pray for the lost, as we minister to the broken, as we reach out with the gospel, we emulate the life of Jesus that we see in this snapshot of one day. And oh, what a beautiful snapshot it is. By the way, this morning, maybe you're in that desperate situation. You're hurting and helpless. You find yourself struggling. You've never found the power and the peace that Jesus offers. Today, you can be saved. That can all change. This woman reached out in faith. Jairus reached out in faith. This morning, reach out to Jesus in faith and he'll touch your situation. Maybe this morning the desire of your heart is to unite with this church and, and be a member of it and to reach out with us, to link arms and to reach the pine belt and the world for Jesus. I would love for you to be a part of doing that with us. This morning, as we have a hymn of invitation, a time of decision, you let God have His way in your life. Members of the staff will be here to meet you. You come now.